The Hot Nerd Bog is a subscription and advert-free podcast. Please help us keep it that way by either donating or purchasing products from our store. Or alternatively, you can give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Just follow the link in the description below. Thank you and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Hut Near the Bog, the podcast where a life and business coach and a philosopher discuss various aspects of human existence by drawing on the wisdom of old Ireland as well as their own expertise and life experiences. In this bonus episode, I speak to the guest editor of the Irish Philosophical Society Journal and Carlow College lecturer, Dr. Noel Kavanagh. Noel tells us how a packet of peanuts led to his decision to quit his job as a truck driver and instead pursue a career in academia. His grandmother, who was a nanny to the stars, and his grandfather on his father's side, who was a subsistence farmer from rural Tipperary. Myself and Noel explore what it means to be Irish and how this has changed over the last number of decades. Noel also tells us about his interest in the philosophy of love and explains why there is a therapy in learning about philosophy. In the final part, he outlines how the COVID-19 pandemic has proved to be a true test to a notion central to Western liberal democracies, namely the social contract. So, hi Noel, uh, how are you? Not too bad at all. Well, thanks, bad at thanks a million for coming on the podcast, I no, really appreciate it. Oh, no, no, it's, a, uh, it's a real honour to have you on. And uh, I'm just wondering, could you start by telling us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, um, well, uh, born in England, um, raised predominantly in Ireland, um, and kind of, I suppose, my path to education, you know, it was in the 1980s, uh, school didn't, secondary school in particular didn't suit me, wasn't the best of time um for uh for for me in school so um ended up leaving school early uh, drove a truck for a living uh worked in a wholesalers and um i suppose came to education third level education in my mid 20s as a mature student uh, in 1992 uh where i went to uh, study arts in Maynooth. so um and from there on in i suppose i was uh I was uh, lost to, to 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 the world of ideas and you know books and stuff like that. The the, the story ever since. And Absolutely. I, yeah. uh, so how does a how does a, a truck driver turn philosopher? <laughs> well, I suppose in some ways there's there's an interesting story in that in that uh, I suppose it, it all comes down to peanuts in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in that and and actually that's not an analogy, that's not a metaphor. It was actually down to a packet of peanuts because I was working very very long hours. And I always rem- I remember doing a, a quick run uh, at the end of a very very long week for um, for the for the, the the kind of foreman. It kind of said to me, "Would you go to a local shop, you know, just deliver this?" And I said, "Grant." So I got back to the w- warehouse and was just about to kind of you know lock the van up for the weekend, you know, and kind of long iron break and manager came to me and kind of said that you know he said uh, there's a problem he says your man the shopkeepers have been on the phone he says all right he says, he says there's uh, peanuts missing off the order you know and i says all right he says jesus said i right he signed for it he counted off the the items he says right now he says he says no no it's a packet of peanuts off the car the peanuts right. is missing 
And then there was this big thing, and we were looking in the van to see with these packet of peanuts, and then kind of the 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 guy t- foreman turned to me and he kind of said, "We can't find the peanuts. That's going to have to come out your wages, you know." So um, I, I had been thinking about it for a good while, um, you know, kind of, you know, should I make the jump to third level education? Because I thought to myself, you know, throwing forty five kilo, twenty five kilo bags of flour over your shoulder and bringing them into hotels and restaurants, which is predominantly what my delivery run was, was okay when you were twenty five, but at forty five was probably going to tell, you know. Mm. So. Um, always had an interest in reading books I suppose it's accidental you know and it's one of the great philosophical lessons in in life for me that it's it's all by accident you know accidentally you know uh, it happened that Newbridge had a really really great second hand bookshop and accidentally perhaps there was a guy that ran this bookshop that kept, kept on saying I think you'd be really interested in this and you know the great works of literature and the classics and you know the ancient classics and you know Homer and 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 then kind of bits and bods of philosophy and stuff like that you know um, and even when I even though kind of when I got to Maynooth to do liberal arts you know it's the same you know kind of you you you're, you can explore you spend the first few weeks exploring what you want to do so you're going in you know before you choose make your choice there's three subjects you know and I certainly classics you know Greek and Roman civilization as it was called then um was on on my radar English was on my radar because you know I had delusions of grandeur and being a poet or a writer or stuff like that you know um and um my friend said to me, you know, I'm a guy that I had met only a couple of days previously, accidentally, had said, I'm going into the philosophy lecture now, you know, and kind of said, I thought philosophy, you know, yeah, but I'm probably going to cover that in classics, so I don't know. But I walked in, um, and uh, the lecturer there blew me away. He was talking about Heraclitus and Parmenides, and just that with me, gone, accidentally, a philosopher, you know, um, you know, because it could have been any other thing, you know, what if I didn't go there, what if I went to the pub instead, what if I had a cup of coffee, you know what I mean, so it's a, it's accidentally, you know, I'm accident. I, I spent my career, you know, lecturing in Carroll College accidentally, mm-hmm. um, because that was literally down to meeting someone in a pub, um, that said, oh, there's, you know, I'm teaching down in Carlow College. I think there's going to be a philosophy, part-time philosophy. Spot. It's all accidental. Yeah, so it's a good accident, isn't it? Good accident, yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, do you think there was anything from your past that shaped your views or shaped you to kind of, well, they say that there's a kind of idea about something that happens suddenly. And I think actually mm. it was you to explain this to mm. me before, but something, there's no such thing as things that happen suddenly. There's yeah. something that's built up over a long period of time. Yeah, so yeah. I'm interested in, in knowing a bit more about your past, how that shaped you and how it, it geared you or positioned you towards a philosophical career in, in that yeah, sense. I think, I think on both sides, you know, of the, you know, uh, of, of the family kind of from from my mother's side certainly her mother my grandmother Mm -hmm. um uh, she had worked in service all her life from the time she was 16 in england um as a domestic servant um and a nanny um and she used to come back to us every summer for for her summer holidays and spend kind of uh spend her summers in cara and where where we lived but she would tell me of a world out there you know that is you know rural it was rural Kildare in in the 1970s and 80s it was a fairly you know 
closed off place in an awful lot of ways but Gran would tell us about kind of you know London and you know and Jamaican culture which she was very very kind of heavily embedded in in around uh, London because she lived amongst um, you know different ethnic communities and um, different viewpoints and you know even I remember even her telling her on her way from way home every evening on summer's evening you know going uh, from Chelsea she'd be walking along the street and a gay bar would be you know and there would be there's a she passed a gay bar and there would be you know lads out on the street and they'd all invite her and nanny get she was called nanny and very and nan come in for a cup of come in for a drink and stuff like that so kind of that opened my eyes to a kind of i suppose to the idea that in some ways there are various there are always different perspectives on life yeah. that your your life view is just your life view in some ways and those around you and that that being confronted with different viewpoints is is the is the is in some ways the prerequisite to a, to to honest philosophy yeah. is 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 to have certainly your pre, pre, presuppositions, but understand that those presuppositions can always be undermined, you know, yeah. always be undermined, and seek, you know, a good philosopher should seek. For those presuppositions to be undermined, yeah. understand that they're always provisional; that they're never set in stone, yes. and you're all right. Indeed. You know? Well, it's interesting because um, it sounds to me like you had a, a particular set of beliefs and views about the world, and someone came along and ruptured that view, pulled you away from it, and made you think about things in a different way. Yeah. So that was your earliest exposure to. Absolutely, Broad but and it was it was very early in that sense. And kind of again, again, it's it's you know when you bring up this kind of idea of kind of upbringing, it sets you thinking. You know, uh, you know, it's the same time. You know, kind of growing up when I was twelve, thirteen, fourteen in in nineteen eighties Ireland, it was again accidental that we lived beside a guy who had a, one of those massive, big, huge aerials. Uh, you know, TV aerials. Uh, he was involved in in ambulance maintenance and needed it for communications or something but it meant that we got you know all of the foreign channels as they were called you know the bbc's and your utvs and channel fours and um and then accidentally i mean it was 80s it was tough times my parents were you know both worked two jobs and were very heavily involved in the community so i was kind of a bit of a latchkey kid in some ways Mm. um and was left to my own devices and those you know i saw lots of long evenings by the fire in the winter you know spent watching channel four and interest in documentaries and uh you know French film and you know kind of all of that sort of thing opens up your your world view whether you know it or not at the time yeah, yeah, yeah. you know it's a, it's kind of a it's it's invariably having an impact yeah. on you and I suppose couple that I mean I talked about my grandmother on my mother's side and my grandparents on my father's side you know kind of from from rural Tipperary very very my dad my granddad was a farm labourer all his life um, you know clung to a bit of land kind of literally an acre and a half kind of subsistence semi-subsistence stuff um so from them i got a you know there was a certain stoicism you know a get on a self-reliance a self you know kind of a a resilience kind of factor that uh, from them that i've always hopefully brought forward in the best possible way you know Mm. so I'm, i'm wondering how does your irishness ground you philosophically how does that impact your philosophy yeah, it's an interesting question. I suppose in some ways, I mean, I would have a very, very conflicted view of my Irishness anyway. Okay. Um, you know, uh, you know, um, I was English, 
to an awful lot of people, even though I had an Irish accent and kind of, you know, you were born in England. I still get it today. People would say, you know, you know, you're talking to people and, you know, you're discussing your life and people would say, oh, you're born in I said, you know, I said I was born and grew up in England. Oh, really? You're English. So there's always a kind of a kind of a, a thing there, you know, and I certainly felt that as a young person. Yes. Um, I certainly felt it because I felt, I suppose in some ways there was a sense of, uh, you know, I don't want to overplay it, but it, there was a sense of otherness, you know, that I was a little bit different. I was a little bit on the outside. Um, I didn't, you know, it was deemed that I was, it was deemed by who, uh, it was deemed that I didn't kind of, uh, you know, Irish wasn't for me, you know what I mean? It was, right. you know, so it was too late to really learn Irish. And I know my sister more than more than me got that because she was four years older than me. And it was kind of when we arrived back over from England, from London, it was uh, it was kind of like she's too old to learn Irish now, you know. And was, you know, uh, so there was a sense of exclusion, you know, there. Yeah. Um, and I suppose kind of, a, you know, then you're, 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 you're kind of mindful all of the time that Irish didn't mean one set of things. And I think it's something we're still coming to yeah. terms with today, you know. I mean, the whole Black Lives Matter thing has kind of reawakened people's kind of idea of what racism is and kind mm-hmm. of uh, how we deal with um, different cultures because, um, you know, for a long, long time we defined Irish as certainly being white, Catholic, heterosexual, mm-hmm. you know, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, you know, Labour, whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah. And and um, we defined ourselves in a very, very conf- constricted way mm. um but i was always aware i suppose then that there was different ways to be irish you know um you know i was very heavily involved growing up um in kind of and i don't know whether i i think back i don't know whether it was it was an effect of my grandmother or whatever but um i was very hev- heavily into um jamaican music ska music reggae music growing up I was part of that whole skinhead mod kind of uh, thing the two-tone revival in the 80s kind of just uh, the 70s and 80s just hitting me right at the right time um, and kind of I always you know even then kind of you know people would say kind of you know I'm Irish but I like Jamaican music you know what I mean I, I don't like Irish traditional music mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but when you said that to people oh, I can't understand I can't get Irish traditional music it was like she oh, can't be you're not Irish if you don't like Irish music you know mm-hmm. so there was this there was constant I suppose growing up this constant reinforcement to me that there were certain that that ideas are malleable you know and, but they're also I suppose in some ways that they're connected to power um, and it was only many years later when I began reading Michel Foucault um, that I kind of understood that. As I was thinking back and, yeah, you know, the idea that is, you know, this is this, you know, this is what this means, um, limits any expansion, you know. It's the same sort of thinking, you know, mm-hmm. you know kind of that, that would have stopped the Wright brothers or, or the car, you know, a man wasn't meant to travel, you know, faster than a horse could 
ride, you know, a gallop, you know. And we still call it horsepower to this day, you know. Um, uh, you know, if man was meant to fly, he would have given us... You know what I mean? It's that kind of... If you define something in a very, very specific way, then it automatically will exclude any advancement, any progress, any evolution yes. of the idea, well, you know? It's in- interesting because I was talking to... John O'Donoghue in um, my last interview for the podcast and uh, Irish diaspora he mm. considered himself to be London Irish yeah and so it was a we had kind of explored this this kind of conflict between Englishness and Irishness but I don't think there is a conflict for him there's just he's Irish and he was born mm. in London and he's yeah. part of that wider diaspora yeah. and I think what we've probably seen in the last 20 odd years or so is this expansion of the concept of what it means to be Irish mm-hmm. because there's so, I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's a completely preposterous idea to define Irishness in terms of uh, being white, uh, Catholic and either a Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael mm. uh, member, they, I, particularly when it's a country of uh, immigrants and people <laughs> leaving all around the world. So yeah. they, but I think that's good because our, I think our mm. sense of Irishness has expanded. It's changed. It's a mindset. It's, more malleable now than it was and absolutely and i think there's this notion of authenticity is then rethought you know what's authentically irish mm. um you know, i mean we used to have this phrase i don't know if it's even used anymore the plastic paddy mm. and of course it was something we kind of sneeringly in a gentle sneeringly way referred to our american cousins who would come back mm-hmm. you know the plastic paddies you know they want to be more irish than the irish themselves yeah. all of that sort of articulation was in some ways a kind of a struggle I think in some ways to understand what we were you know I see I think I see this now over the commemorations um, you know kind of the, the war of independence you know the 1916 rising you know our the reawakening of our understanding of the first war of of of, of our participation in the in the war and therefore our membership of the empire pre-1916 uh, a history that was buried and forgotten about um is now being talked about again so it's kind of you know our place in the world that we always had uh, seemed to have been lost in our in our attempt to define our own irishness mm. you know mm. um and i think if anything if anything <sighs> How far does it go? If anything, it's it's our participation in the world. It's our it's our citizenry of the world that makes us Irish. So th- th- thanks very much, Noel. I, I'd I'd have to I thoroughly agree with your point of view there. Um, I'm just wondering, do you think that there is an Irish philosophy? Yeah, it's an interesting question. It, it, and there was a bit of a kind of a you know a survey done with the Irish Philosophical Society a few years ago to kind of do this kind of, you know, um, straw poll of the areas of philosophy that philosophers in Ireland were engaging in. Um, and on one hand, it get, the, the result came up that there is no Irish philosophy in in the same way. And I think I think Irish philosophy kind of struggled with that for a while is that, you know, there was a, you know, there, whereas there might be a kind of a, 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 a discernible German philosophy or French philosophy, a particular style of philosophizing or a particular area of philosophy that 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 brings brings itself forward in a in a national consciousness. I don't, just don't think Ireland has one. Now, there's been many arguments. I mean, one of the arguments is 
fundamentally that the possibility of an Irish philosophy you know culturally over centuries was stifled by Catholicism and the you know and 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 essentially our immersement in religious conflict mm. you know um that that you know whether that be you know Catholic Protestant or dissenter mm-hmm. you know it, you know had had kind of so um I know Michael Brown in, in his book on the Irish Enlightenment kind of says that there was no Irish Enlightenment that you know there were three enlightenments there was a Catholic Enlightenment there was a, a Catholic response to the Enlightenment there was a Presbyterian response and there was an Anglican response so he understands that you cannot see Irish philosophy in some ways other than through the prisms of the three religions that would have dominated so much of Irish society um, I don't know. I I think that I, I think sociologically that's probably and psychologically that's probably kind of a, a, a decent enough point to make. Mm. But I think Irish philosophy. I don't think there's a discernible Irish philosophy other than the fact that maybe perhaps it is the willingness of us to you know when we you know the willingness of when we actually do get round to writing a philosophy rather than an academic philosopher you know because nine times out of ten what academic philosophers do is we write about other people's we're you know historians of ideas so Mm -hmm. you know we write papers and books on other philosophers but when we actually sit down if you think about it when people sit down to write philosophies of their own the Irish ones that stand out are those ones that are willing to be multi and interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that are using literature, that are using art, that are using you know, philosophy, psychology, theology, all in one blend together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, without without <laughs> quote unquote decent regard for discipline boundaries. Mm-hmm. And I think if that if there's anything in Irish philosophy in the great Irish philosophers mm. is, is that it's mm. that willingness to use anything, you know, uh, you know, kind of that, you know, it's almost like the journey. There's a, the, I always thought there would have been a, there, there, there was a, there was a distinct German romantic strain in Irish philosophy, you know, that willingness to think that sometimes, you know, that, that maybe art can do something philosophically. Mm. that philosophy itself cannot do mm. that art and therefore that art and and literature and music are and comedy are are and are are, are quite philosophical mm. um you know i mean i i i think i think going back maybe kind of maybe eight nine years ago um you know i think someone like tommy tiernan was in his comedy was edging close to kind of, in some ways, a philosophical exploration um, of life um, in all its magnificence and torturedness. Mm-hmm. And I think I think there was a couple of times there, that, you know, a couple of some live a couple of times, and he was on the edge of it, you know, of, yeah. of that just that philosophical well, exploration without boundaries. Yeah. Well, Tiernan, Tiernan's an interesting character because uh, I know that he was a, a he. Engage with John Moriarty yeah. a lot, so mm. there's definitely something very the, philosophical. And he's a searcher. He's a searcher. I mean, I do think that, and I think I think that comes out in the best of his comedy is that he's searching for something. And for him, for an awful lot, it was that search philosophically for what it meant to be Irish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed, that came across in an awful a certain period of his work. It came across very, very clearly. Just to bring it back there a little bit, so, um, so I would. 
perhaps take a different viewpoint on that. And one way I would think about it is, so I'd agree that there isn't a distinctive style of Irish philosophy. Any of the Irish philosophers, either you're talking about Berkeley or uh, Edmund Burke or uh, these uh, these 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 big intellectuals uh, thinkers they were very much part of the the establishment which was the mm. british establishment so they were they were irish but their fillet, their way of thinking would have been very much within that anglo uh that ang- ang- anglo tradition um but i think prior to this homo- uh, the kind of uh, homogeny of british culture or the anglicization of ireland which stifled Irish intellectual development and many other, economically, but as well as intellectually. There seems to be something, if you hearken back to these, uh, this, uh, Celt- these, uh, these Celtic roots, these Gaelic roots, that there seems to be some wisdom that's passed down mm. through that. And I think that the likes of John O'Donoghue, John Moriarty, uh, and even someone like Peg Sayers, for example, they're people who have... Uh, it's it's it hasn't survived that way of thinking didn't survive in the in the great academic institutions but no. it survived in the people mm. and so I think that in the folk traditions that there is a philo- there's a kind of philosophy there but it's a very mm. practical philosophy Absolutely. it's a way of yeah. life yeah. and so if I take it back to your uh, grandparents mm. in Tipperary mm. so do you think that there was do you think that they it's not that they, they maybe they wouldn't have been explicitly aware of it, but their way of life was there. A, you said it's stoic, but do you think there was something a, a distinctive Irish flavour to that way of living, that kind of the way they saw the world? Yeah, very much. So. Like I mean, and it's it's. I suppose in some ways it would be that kind of. Um, you know, I kind of see it almost constantly in Beckett. You know, and you know, kind of. Before lockdown, I was I was kind of um, we were in we were in London and we saw you know um, Endgame you know uh, uh, in the Vic and just it just struck me again in a way that it wouldn't have struck me before how Irish it was as a play in some ways in that in that there's this sense of I suppose in some ways it's. It's the it's the recognition of the absurdity, the humorous absurdity of existence, that leads to a certain irony and a certain irony and a certain ironic distance that Irish people have. I, I think that is distinctively Irish. That comes from, I suppose, kind of it, it's a folk wisdom that comes from the harshness of of of. of of leading existence, you know, of, of struggling to to exist and struggling to question the meaning of existence. And, you know, we can, you know, we can put a galois in our mouth and put on a kind of a cream mac, you know, and a pair of Ray-Bans and sit in the left bank of Paris and talk about that. And it's existentialism, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, uh, you know, and it's very groovy and brilliant and, mm-hmm. you know, and all of that sort of stuff. I'm a big fan and all of, but, but that kind of, you know, sure, it's only a game of football, lads. 
you know, you know, you get, you'll see that at football matches in yeah. inevitably when lads are getting and lads do get hot and bothered uh, over. Oh, just someone will always intervene. Lads, it's only a game of football. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It's not life and death. It's only a game of football. Yeah, it, is, it is life and death. Yeah. Well, you <laughs> see, see, as a Liverpool fan now, you see, you're, you're just you're just giddy at the moment. <laughs> and look, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I, I, you know, many might remember me traveling Ireland and doing, uh, you know, being on the telly a couple traveling. Europe for the Euros for the Ireland team and kind of I did a, a kind of a stint on a, a little bit of a, a brief had me three minutes of fame sort of thing on telly or whatever yeah. um, but uh, hu- football's hugely important to me yeah. um, but in the end of the day I think as an Irish person we get very passionate about things but I think in the end of the day we do know we have that ironic distance yeah. you know what I mean um, you know uh, someone said to me and I, I think it's in maybe it's a it's it's something that someone said Beckett said although I don't or Joyce said that you know that the the most dangerous thing is an Irishman taking himself seriously Mm. you know that uh, you know we can take ourselves sincerely but don't for a minute take yourself seriously and I think that's something doesn't it you know I mean we often we often you know when people become you know pop stars and film stars become famous Irish pop stars, you know, film stars, and they come back, you know, they kind of go, the refreshing thing is, you know, when they go to the local pub or wherever like that, they won't be allowed to, you know, get up themselves. Mm. Because not in any nasty way, you know, kind of, but but we'll bring people back down to earth. Yes. Uh, the philosophy of love has been and is an ongoing research interest for you. How does this relate to your broader philosophical interests? Um, I suppose for me... <laughs> When I was, when I was, you know, coming to the point of, you know, when you're transiting from undergrad to postgraduate and you're kind of setting out kind of an area of interest for yourself, I suppose love, love seemed to be one of those issues, one of those ideas, one of those concerns that is universally human, um, you know, and you, I would argue now hum, beyond human. Uh, into the animal world and I suppose it, it it's a very real thing we all strive for love you know because I wanted philosophy I wanted to get into an area of philosophy that would be relevant to people's lives you know um, yes I could be very clever and you know parse out and analyse some obscure phenomenologist's work which mm. I did in my PhD anyway yeah. but the, but in, in, but in the end of the day I wanted to deal with a subject matter that was of concern to everyone um, and to me and so is to, to in that idea that philosophy is relevant to everyone it's not just something that's stuck away in the corner you know as an academic interest that you know um so i suppose love then became this just you know it 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 connected the personal i strive for love i strive to understand love i, I you know I, I connect that with then philosophy um people invariably it's the one thing i mean you know, I've written on various things and kind of published ver- about various things uh, over the years. But everyone's interested in debate, you know, kind of love. All oh, right, what does love mean? And, mm. you know, and people are interested in that. So and that's so and it, it's because it's 
it's also the idea of philosophy as, as, as help in your life, you know, philosophy is therapy in your life. That's a very important idea for me, is that philosophy can be of a use, it can help you figure out the world. So what better idea than love, you know? And of course, then that is, that, that permeates everything, because... You know, I mean, it's it's almost trite to say it, but philosophia, the love of wisdom, you know, that philosophizing is in and of itself an act of love. Um, so it permeates all, you know, so it permeates everything we do and it permeates everything that I write about. Uh, because I'm writing about it. I mean, even if I sit down and write some anything or think about anything or choose a new module, it's because I love that I have found that to be, uh, you know, uh, to be attractive in that sense, that subject matter. So it's all it's all love in that sense. Now, what that means is the great journey. I haven't a clue at this stage of the game what love is. I know I am in love. I know I love. I know other people love. But it, it's maybe kind of one of those... That's probably why I'm interested in it. It's one of those subject matters that's at, that that trembles on the borders of disciplines as well. You know, is that you know, you know, I can sit and write a PhD thesis on love, but you know, Hosier can write a three-minute song that could hit it on the hit, you know, yeah. hit, hit that nail on the head in a way that that that, that philosophy could never do. Mm. Um, so it's an interesting, it's a it's a constant area of fascination for me, you know. So what, could you say a little bit more about the philosophy as therapy? It'd be interesting. Yeah, well, it's, it's an inter- an area I've been very very interested over the last few years is the is the connection between philosophy and psychoanalytic theory and psychotherapeutic stuff. It's led me into a kind of I'm training at the moment as a logotherapist. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's taken me into that idea that philosophy in and of itself, used properly, can be a therapy. Mm. Um, it's about kind of... And it, that does, I suppose, in some ways what it, was, what it did was it did resonate with all of the philosophies that I was interested in anyway. You know, existentialism, you know, Nietzsche, you know, people might raise an eyebrow and go, Nietzsche is it? But Nietzsche was the first great self-help philosopher. Mm. He was the first Indeed. great philosopher as therapist in that sense, in the modern sense. But it goes all the way back to, you know, Socrates. Know thyself. Mm. You know, it's it's always been there. It's just in some ways that philosophy over the ages became this thing that moved out of public life into, into the institution mm-hmm. um, and became internal unto itself. Um, you know, so philosophy would argue over uh, over issues in philosophy rather than going out and 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 I suppose convincing people, you know, that you know, in a, in a kind of a non you know prescriptive way. Okay, you're feeling like that now. Well, here's something Seneca would have said, or here's something that um, uh, that Aristotle might have said that might help you. Yeah. Here's something Sartre said. That might be of use to you now. It may not be of use to you in six months' time. Yeah. I'd say it makes me think of something that John O'Donoghue says when he started writing first. He said, you go into a bookshop and, and you go into the attic and you go to the very corner of the back of the attic and there would be a small uh, covered in dust to be some of these self-help books. Mm. And he said, well, had, had things had changed. And this was 10 years ago. He said, now there's 
these um, mm. massive shelves uh, devoted to you know in bookstores and all self help. He said, but he said that they would shrink in comparison to if they were confronted with the with some of the the wisdom from the past and some of the great works of. Uh, different thinkers that they would shrink in in comparison because they're completely a lot of them are completely vacuous where this i suppose distilled for me was when um in carroll college i over the over a few years i became quite heavily involved in student recruitment so i would be going out to secondary schools to leave and search students um, and kind of, you know, just selling the, the, the Carlo College. And invariably, when you're selling the arts and humanities degree in this philosophy, and you know, you have to inevitably answer a question from a, a student. Why should I study philosophy? Mm. Um, you know, and you can get all, you know, kind of, oh, because it's the great, you know, you can get all, you know, because it's worthy in and of itself. You know, and all of this sort of stuff. But try explaining that to a 17 or 18 year old, you know, who wants to, like, why should I, how is it relevant to me? And it changed my entire way of teaching. Um, in that now I go out of the way, my first year is now in September, I'll be teaching ancient Greek philosophy. But on the very first day, I'll be telling them that the very issues that these ancient Greek philosophers were talking about impact their lives to this very day mm. um you know um and to to make people under to, to kind of get students to understand that the ideas that they take as natural givens assumptions of their age are actually the result of a thousand years more of thinking mm. uh, that they've now taken on they've absorbed because no philosophy is born in a vacuum, indeed, you know, um, and and that essentially your ideas are always inherited. I mean, it is the it's the it's 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 in some ways the great joy and the great tragedy of every generation to think that they invented everything, mm. you know, uh, that the ideas they have are are brand new to them when they're really an inheritance. You know, you can't get under, you can't get out from under the weight of your own tradition. You can evolve, you can you can modify it but there's no neutral thinking in that sense you're always thinking from somewhere from the tradition mm. um and and to know that then is 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 a huge i suppose that's the job of work i think philosophy has to do and we've been very poor at that in in certainly in 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 ireland and in england and i think in america as well not so much on the continent but we've been very very poor at trying to convince people that any of this stuff that we think about or read is actually important in people's everyday lives you know and the irony is that the people that strove to do that originally the alum de batons of of this world, you know, his great book, The Consolations of Philosophy, which is an attempt to make philosophy irrelevant, the, the academic community kind of sneered at him a little bit, you know, pop philosophy or something like that. But of course it's pop philosophy, it has to be, you know what I mean? He did a brilliant thing, the, 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 the book and TV series, where uh, he he went with a with a, a a London van driver who, you know, a self-confessed road rager, Mm. Um, and over two days, three days with him, um, taught him Seneca, Seneca's small little essay on anger. 
And by the end of it, the guy was going, yeah, I know, yeah, I, I, I get angry at other people because I expect them to meet my standards, he says. So he said, you know, Seneca would say in his essay on anger, you get angry at people when people fail to reach your expectations. So you should wake up every day and say, everyone else around me today is going to fail me is going to screw up my expectations and get in my way. And if you have that in your head straight away, you don't get angry. Mm. No, it's quite a bleak way of looking at things, but yeah. it's it it was it was an uh, it was a it was a it's the, certainly an effective method for uh, uh, helping you not to lose your temper. Yeah, anyway, absolutely, sure. absolutely, and they did the same with. Um, it was a it was I think if I remember rightly, it was. Um, it was a friend of his wife's who had just been dumped in a long-term relationship. And he talked to her about Schopenhauer and, you know, and love and, 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 and things like that. So it's, 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 philosophy needs to do that far more. I tell my first-year Greek philosophy students, I say, you know, it's a, it's a phrase I use. It, it's kind of, you know, Aristotle for the good times, Plato for the bad. Because Aristotle's philosophy was one to look at the world, whereas Plato's one was to ignore the world. The world wasn't, and so it's no doubt that it's no surprise. Then, see, so I I'll talk to them about Augustine writing the City of God, you know, um, and Augustine wrote the City of God as the Bishop of Hippo, the last great Roman city of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had completely fallen apart, and Augustine lies dying in his bed. Um, you know, ten years after he writes the City of God, uh, and and in the background you can hear the Vandals besieging the city, and the last great Roman city of Hippo in Northern Africa is the last great Roman city is about to fall. But for Plato, for 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 Augustine, that was all right because he was a Neoplatonic philosopher, and his his whole argument in the City of God was forget about the City of Man; it doesn't really matter. Law always look to the City of God. You've got to suffer this world in order to get to God. Mm. So that makes sense that makes sense i mean for augustine to pick up on uh, on plato made sense for augustine who was a roman a roman aristocrat who saw the roman empire and and his fellow citizens seeing the roman empire completely disintegrate into anarchy everything's gone to hell in a handbasket so why not develop a philosophy that says it doesn't really matter anyway look we're all going to heaven mm. So it's it's of its time, mm. it's of its place, it's of its uh, it, it it reflects. So no philosophy it comes. I mean, we see we have this sense sometimes, and it's an old kind of um, you know idea of philosophy that it's you know. And people will say, "Oh, what do you imagine when you when we say the word philosopher?" And people will say, "Will probably kind of look towards some kind of statue with the furrowed browed philosopher in his ivory tower, thinking up." you know interesting thoughts with no reflection to the world that goes on around him Mm -hmm. or her you know Mm -hmm. but that's not the truth all philosophy that's written is a reflection of the times either either in response negatively or in response positively to the socio-economic religious psychological conditions of the time Mm. Uh, somebody once threw an what they thought an insult to me was after a conference said you're not really a philosopher you're a sociologist of philosophy Mm. and he meant that as a kind of a slur Mm. and i kind of said yeah i'm actually yeah i'm I'm okay with that more than okay with that i'm a sociologist of philosophy Mm. um i under that's how i understand the history of ideas has to be embedded in the times. Yeah, of course. So, yeah, so we both seem to be very much in agreement on the idea that philosophy can help us as it can be both a therapy and a way of thinking about things and life. 
And I'm wondering then, it seems now more than ever, we perhaps need to be thinking philosophically. So how can philosophy help us think about the current uh, COVID situation? Well, I t- I, again, I think the, what, the, the temptation, I suppose, would be to jump right in there with all the stuff that we've been talking about as philosophy as therapy and kind of there's no doubting about it. Re, like we're living in an anxious age. Mm-hmm. There's no two ways about it. Um, we are all suffering different levels of anxiety. And why are we suffering that anxiety? Because it's uncertainty. We are, we're anxious in in the kind of in the face of uncertainty, um, yet I got I I I get great comfort out of reading someone like Kierkegaard at this time, you know, who 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 wrote a book on anxiety seventy years before Freud began to articulate the notion of anxiety, and and um, Kierkegaard says a brilliant thing. He says he says anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. And he said, attempting and learning to live with anxiety in the right way is the trick of every human being. We have, I suppose, in the modern world, in the medical model of the modern world, begun to see anxiety as something that is immediately negative, Mm. that needs to be expunged from our lives. Oh, I'm anxious. Okay, GP, anxious, how do I get rid of this anxiety? Here's some medicine. That'll make you less anxious. Or here's some CBT that'll, that'll, that'll help technique to help you not be anxious. Where, whereas living with anxiety and understanding why you're anxious is the key. Not eliminating anxiety. Mm. Because if we eliminate anxiety in our lives, then we don't progress. No. In any way, shape, or form. So the tend the temptation would be to jump right in there. But I suppose what's interesting for me at the moment is, as a political philosopher as well, mm. is how the pandemic has tested the social contract. Mm. All Western democracies, liberal democracies, work on the basis of what in political philosophy we call the social contract. Now that contract articulates the idea that the individual is supreme. And that therefore the state or society Mm. should only infringe on your freedoms uh, to the extent that you're infringing on other people's freedoms. So in other words, what it does is it affords you huge amounts of freedom. Um, And therefore the state stands back from telling you what to do in your everyday life. Uh, So a good state. That's where we get this idea of a nanny state. People can only whinge about a nanny state. When, you know, and say, oh, this is just another instance of the nanny state. But you can only articulate that if you have been brought up in a society that tells you the individual is king. Mm. The great balance to be had in any liberal democracy is therefore the rights of the individual uh, over and against the claims of any social collectivity. Now, what we have then is how is that balance to to be struck? For some social contractarians, it was fear. I am. I want to do what I want any old time. I want to be able to pursue my individuality and my sovereignty as a human being uh, at every instance. But I am fearful that there is going to be consequences to that, or I'm fearful that someone else is going to take that freedom. So I give up loads of freedoms in order to better secure my future. Uh, out of fear for the German philosopher Kant it was one of reason now I found that I find Kant very very interesting now because 
in a large sense, we we saw the contract when the when the state came and said, right, okay, all of that the previous contract where we had where we were afforded you huge amounts of liberty to do what you want pretty much any all time, um, within certain limits, certain restrictions, now we're going to have to overturn that. In other words, now the claim of social collectivity has to trump your individual desire to pursue your freedoms. But that's reasonable to do it. So what this, what Kant says in the social contract in, in his social contract theory is that it is an exercise of human reason. And in some ways we've seen that in Ireland, we have seen that rationality, that reasonableness. Yes, I'm willing to lock down. And yes, I'm willing to do all of things. Yes, I'm willing to lose my job in many instances because we need to get beyond, collectively get beyond this crisis. But you also saw that as that, as that advanced as the lockdown as the claims of social collectivity over your individual liberties began to bite in you saw therefore that the fraying at the edges of this and of course the fraying of the edges i've often the one analogy i have in my head about social contract theory is and i think we discussed it before was that the roundabout theory you know you come into a roundabout now the roundabout works brilliantly well as a traffic technique as a traffic flow technique but it only works if everyone obeys the rules and if you obey the rules you get advantage because you get through the traffic you get the far side of the roundabout so there's two fundamental rules to the roundabout you give way to traffic on your on your right and you don't get onto the roundabout unless you can get off the roundabout so you don't get on unless you can get off the far side so you come to a roundabout and you see the far side is a bit of a traffic jam. Maybe there's traffic works going on the far side and there's links to that. So the rule is you don't get on, right? But the guy, you're yielding to the guy from the right. The guy from the right sees and so he edges in. But he can't get off the roundabout now. And then someone else goes, well, he's gotten in. So, and then suddenly the traffic jam starts to edge around the roundabout. Now you have a choice. You either go... Right, if I obey the rules now, I'm going to be particularly disadvantaged here. Because now the rule system has broken down. So what do you do? You go, screw it. I'm going to drive in as well, because otherwise I'll be here all day. So suddenly now the contract has broken down the roundabout. Excuse me, the roundabout doesn't work. Chaos ensues. So on a rational, on the reasoned state of the social contract, everything only works to the extent that everyone plays by the rules. And we have it. We, you know, we've all experienced it over the COVID, uh, over this thing. You know, perhaps you don't see it as much in rural areas, but you certainly see it in urban areas. You know, X or Y down the road is not behaving as they should be. So you begin to go, look, I'm taking this in, you know, in good, in good stead and in good, in honesty, and I'm playing by the rules. But Frank down the road, sure, Jesus, he had a fucking party out the back garden the other night. There had to be 30 people there. At the, I said, why am I doing it? You know, why am I obeying the rules when no one else seems to obey the rules? Mm. So then the contract disintegrates. Um, so it's a very finely balanced thing, the social contract. Um, because it was never really, it was always set uh, on, on the side of individual liberty. 
uh, you know, Grey talks about um, uh, talks about the very nature of the uh, of of the social contract in the liberal tradition, and he says it it assigns predominance to the individual over the claims of any social collectivity. So it begins the contract by saying the individual and the individual's freedoms are more important. For Kant, that was even a moral thing. You know, being told what to do meant that you were abandoning your reason. So you were essentially being immoral. So don't be told what you to do. So that then necessitates that any, you know, claim of any social collectivity, any state, is uh, coercion. So that's a fine balance to get. And Kant believed that it was only through reason that that could survive. Um, But when that's so balanced to the individual... That balance then it depends it depends on where your starting point is. Mm-hmm. Can I say that the what we experiencing at the moment in the United States was the failure of any contract or maybe even the absence of a social contract because American society is founded upon the absolute right of the individual to do what they want. Mm-hmm with only very, very minor limitations on that. So, uh, you know, you know, you get people articulating very vociferously in the States that, you know, that you can't, you know, that even asking you to wear a mask is in some ways an infringement of their amendment rights. You know, um, you know that of their 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 desire for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But of course, that version of liberty is very, very individual, very, very self-serving, and isn't really articulated in the states in terms of an enlightened self-interest. Mm-hmm. It's just my self-interest. Now, that's partly historical. It's partly Jeffersonian. Philosophically, it's partly Jeffersonian in that sense. But what you get then is an almost impossible task of, of, of government to dictate to people how they should live their lives, even for brief periods of time. Um, because the person will only say, well, I need to do this. And we see some of that begin to happen in Ireland uh, as, as lockdown. People are going, no, well, you know, there's always the, what I call the exemptionism. You know, uh, you know. Uh, yes, we're all playing by the rules, but on this particular instance, I'm exempting myself from the rules. Mm-hmm. Right? Tends to be quite thoroughly middle class <laughs> in some ways. Mm. It's a class thing in some ways. Is that you know, kind of? Oh, you know. Well, yes, we're playing by the rules, but you know, um, we're going to have a party for my child because oh, he or she's struggling. And it's that kind of sense that, right, I'm opting out of the contract for a minute or two to satisfy my needs rather than, you know, obeying mm. the contract rules. Mm. And the more and more we see the, 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 the lockdown, it's getting, it's getting easier now as, we, as you and I are talking. This is the day of the third phase or whatever yes. like that and, and, and massive restrictions uh, being lifted. So it's becoming easier. But certainly maybe three, four weeks ago, that idea uh, of, you know, I'm obeying by the rules except in this one instance. 
becomes a kind of a thing. You can see it on social media. So I, a, a friend of mine pointed out a, a, um, another friend um, on social media a, a couple of weeks ago who was uh, on one hand on the Sunday, you know, evening going kind of, you know, oh yeah, we see, you know, the report that, that the figures are down, you know, come on, we'll all stick, if we all stick together, we can make it through this, let's, you know, stay locked down, folks, stay safe. Um, but on the previous Friday night, he was uh he had a uh, kind of a, a snippet on his instagram story mm. and he was in his mate's back garden there had to be 30 guys in the back garden drunk and jumping around the place and hugging each other yeah. so he didn't but he didn't see the two things there was a cognitive dissonance going on you know um but uh so it's good it's for me as a political philosopher it's very very interesting to see which way this to see how because contracts the brilliant thing in some ways is that the the liberal democratic contract is very very, very, very rarely tested. Mm. The pandemic is is one that tested it, and it's interesting the different different forms of liberal democracy that take place in different countries, and how they managed. You know, uh, you know, Ireland for some reason did cross fingers remarkably well in convincing people you know that this was the reasoned act mm. you know it was the rational social contract i think people in the english experience struggled a little bit more the american one didn't even make that contract theory argument mm. um and it's interesting because it's it would have always been presumed that the irish you know the argument to bring it back to the irishness thing mm. you know you know oh the irish will never obey rules because as a post-colonial country we are almost naturally you know inclined to rule breaking mm. but when the smoking ban came in um it was effective 100 percent effective nearly almost overnight why? And as, as I say that as someone at the time the, the, the smoking ban came in, I was gleefully smoking 40 cigarettes a day, mm. you know, and, 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 but I saw that it was a reasonable thing. It's a re- yes, this is really common sense, reasonable law. Let's stop smoking in other people's faces. Mm. And it was completely, so Ireland is capable of, 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 of fine examples of the Kantian contract, I mm. think. You know, um, I'd say that you could you could equally say, or you could at least some a Hobbesian could come along and say, well, and indeed it's a a fine example of 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 uh, Hobbes' view of human nature in terms of fear and stuff like that. Very well. much so, but, but Kant has an interesting take on that. Kant had said that you know that that in some ways, like you know, fear is the initial impetus, but fear is rational so your 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 entrance into the contract your assent your agreement mm. to the contract is an act of reason in itself noel thank you so much for coming on the podcast i really enjoyed the conversation and i look forward to hopefully having you back on at some point in the future I really enjoyed it james and i'd be delighted to come back on yeah hi folks we really hope that you enjoyed this episode if you have a minute please do follow or subscribe on whichever platform you listen to this podcast on and check out our Facebook page at The Hut Near The Bog for more great content. Bye.